0: passage is found in Daniel 4. We'll be reading verses 4 to 8 and 19 to 27. It begins, I Nebuchadnezzar was at my home in my palace contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid and as I was lying in bed the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, Your Majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This is mine? Is this anyone? I'm serious. Okay, I guess nobody drank morning church. How's the temperature? Are we back to sort of normal? <clears throat> I'll try to keep it uh, keep it cool. Um, I promised many years ago when I became a pastor I would not overuse Lord of the Rings analogies okay and so this isn't this isn't actually one of those this is just to let you know that something amazing has happened in my house something I really was hoping would happen for a long time is that Noah and I started to read the books together so we finished fellowship and then we said once we finished reading we'd get to watch it. So um, that's been amazing. I just get to relive this thing. It's kind of something I do every year, and and now he's a part of it. It's very exciting um, for us. But one of the reasons I love that movie, and it actually is not just about that movie, those stories uh, uh, that were actually started, uh, written by Tolkien during uh, World War II, but Um, lots of comic books, lots of superhero movies, lots of the films that are played on this screen, many of the books that you enjoy reading. They are stories of underdogs or people who are under the power of evil. Like, you know, when you read the Lord of the Rings books, like evil seems so powerful, so pervasive, so strong. It seems, in a sense, impossible for good to prevail. And yet, as you continue to see, there's sort of hope Rising and individuals and people, and sort of the story of the, the Lord of the Rings is that, that Aragorn, the, the lost sort of king, rightly taking up the power and the sword that was his and overcoming, in the sense, spoiler alert, darkness at the end of it. And the reason we love it, I think, in many ways, and these are themes that are repeated in all kinds of superhero stories, and many uh, where it seems like darkness and evil are prevailing, and suddenly good is rising up and strengthened, is able to overpower the evil that seems so dominant and so pervasive. One of the reasons I think we like it, and we know that we sort of watch movies and read books in order to escape, in a sense, often the world that we live in or forget about the troubles that we live in, I think the reason we like those stories is because many of us can relate to the experience of feeling powerless. Like maybe in your in your employment situation that you're in right now, maybe you're working for someone who feels like they are using power um, to your disadvantage, like over you. Maybe actively, or just they're the kind of person that wields their power sort of indiscriminately and, 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 and with a lack of care, and so others are hurt by the power that's being exerted. Or maybe you just feel like, oh, I'm at the mercy of this powerful sort of multinational, I'm at the mercy of the power of the stock market, the stuff that happens to me in my job and my life is just because of the power of money or the power of being a publicly traded company or the power of being sort of a small part of a massive Organization or union or, or company. Maybe sometimes closer to home, we feel a sense of powerlessness in the relationships that we are in. Perhaps you feel like that in a marriage relationship where in a sense that there's a power dynamic going on and you feel like you're the one sort of who's constantly sort of uh, with the short straw or, or sort of under the influence of some whether they're aware of it or not that's just sort of moving, like no nudging each other at this point. Okay, let's just listen. Um, maybe in, in some of you that are from very strong and tight and big families, you know this, especially sort of non-North American background families where families, everything is so tight, sometimes things can go sideways. Sometimes certain members of the family seem to wield a certain power over everybody else. They seem to hold the floor in family conversations. Their attitudes or their moods or their, their ideas are the ones that seem that the rest of us just sort of have to live with and are stuck with. And so constantly, we may not, we may not realize it, but we're feeling sort of on the short end of the power struggle, which is why we all have anger fantasies, right? I, I'm going out on a limb here. might be the only one. Right, where we are, and you know, we're imagining that conversation that we're gonna have. Some of us fantasize about walking into our boss's office and dropping that resignation letter, right? And we can't do that too much because that could end up happening. But like we we do that. Why? And what what we want in that moment is for that moment, I'm in control. I'm telling you, I'm done. I'm done with the way you train, I'm done with this company, I'm done with doing this, I don't care about this anymore. There's a moment of power, right? Where we're able to drop that. Or maybe we rehearse those speeches that we would give to our boss or our spouse or that family member. Or maybe like we're going to just finally stand up at Christmas dinner and just say it and drop the mic and out we go, right? Like there's just that moment of like, I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm in control for this 30 seconds at least. I'm going to tell you what I think. So we have the anger fantasies. And often we don't realize that the anger we express, anger anger is actually a safe emotion, which is why we tend to show it more. It's not safe for everyone else. It's safe for us. It's safer than saying, I feel weak. And so often the anger that we express in our lives, the anger that we feel, even if it's small, sort of a little bit of angst that's chewing us up inside when we're with our family or with that person or in that environment, it's a sense of, it's a, it's a way to deal with the fact that we feel not in control. We don't, we're on, on the wrong end of the power struggle. And so we think in that moment, well, all I need is a little bit more power. Like if I just get the upper hand just for a moment or just to be able to say that or just to be able to speak this, that, that would give me a little bit. The problem is like power is a very corrupting thing. Psychologist and uh, retired professor now from Stanford, Philip Zimbardo, conducted what some of you may know, this famous experiment in 1971 called the Stanford Prison Experiment. I'm sure they would never be allowed to do this today. But back in the 70s, you know, it was the Wild West, whatever. Um, So they carved out this space in the basement of Stanford, and they recruited people. They were trying to actually get at this power dynamic that was existing in prisons between guards and prisoners, and it was really dysfunctional at that time in North America. And so Zimbardo undertook this experiment to say, okay, let's try to figure out what is playing into these power dynamics. So they got students to volunteer from the student body at Stanford, and they were randomly assigned roles, either guards or um, prisoners. And so they carved out the space in the basement of Stanford and made it into a prison, and then the guards' quarters were separate from that. Well, the experiment went sideways fast. So the prisoners were starting to feel like taken advantage of by the guards, and so they would barricade the doors with their mattresses, and the guards were showing a lot of increased aggression. Like, these are just students who had volunteered. They were just given randomly, and so they would take the mattresses away sometimes, so they have to sleep on the floor. In some cases, some of the prisoners were deprived of their bathroom rights, and they were given a bucket that they were supposed to use in this place. These are, these are like Stanford students, Okay. In some cases, some of them were were, their clothes were stolen, so they had to remain naked as a way of like public degradation. And the guards were using sort of psychological manipulation. They were saying, by the by, after six weeks, they had to shut the whole thing down because it went absolutely crazy. You can Google this; it's it's incredible to read. And they said that they had observed that one third of the guards by that point had exhibited strong sadistic tendencies, and all of the guards were disappointed that the experiment was cut short early. This is crazy, right? A little bit of power just as an experiment, so corrupting so quickly to the average person. Now, not everyone who has power wields it like that. Not everyone who's in power, not every CEO, not every politician, not every sort of relationship or family dynamic or matriarch or patriarch wields power that way. We've all benefited probably from very good leaders as well. But one of the things we for sure think is that if I had power, I would do a better job with it than the people who have power over me do with it right now. We all think that. And we all think, so all I need is a little bit more. And yet, we know power seems to corrupt. Like, it's like the story of every African country. Right where the, where the military comes in and overthrows the dictator and the people love them. And within 10 years, the people are crying out again because that, that military leader has become the dictator they overthrew. It happens over and over. And it's not because there's something wrong with those African people. It is the nature of humanity and what we do with power that we are given. Well, the reason we're talking about this today is because we are in the middle of a book called Daniel, which is set in uh, the empire of Babylon. And every empire before Babylon and Babylon and after that and even up till today, every empire deals in power. That's how it works. We're, we're studying the life of this young man, Daniel, and a few of his friends who were really uh, in a powerless situation at the mercy of King Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon. And what Babylon was doing at the time, and you, from the passage that was read, they were, they were quite spread out. They had conquered all of these uh, other nations and areas, and uh, what they would do would be to take the, um, the, re- the elite, the royal family, the highly educated, and, and like they burn the city where they were and destroy the leaders, and they would bring all of the high potential young people into Babylon and then brainwash them with the ways and the teachings and the religion and the practices of Babylon to make Babylon the nation, the empire, stronger and to keep everybody else that they had conquered sort of under their thumbs. And Nebuchadnezzar, when he did that to Daniel's uh, country, we know we read some of the history of it in other parts of the Bible, says that when he, when he conquered Judah, they, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, which was the, Daniel's capital city. So imagine sort of as a 14- as a or 15-year-old kid, you're going through this. Imagine someone comes in your city, destroys the, like imagine this. Someone came in and actually destroyed City Hall or destroyed Ottawa and like brought out the prime minister. And this is what, Babylon, this is what Nebuchadnezzar did to the king of Judah. He, he brought him to his knees, brought his family out in front of him, killed his sons, and then poked his eyes out so that the last thing he saw was his sons dying. This was not just a king conquering another king. It was a power play. That's how Nebuchadnezzar worked. That was the kind of person he was. That's what they did. And so Daniel, seeing all of that happening in his home state, and he was part of the nobility, we think, so he probably would have had visibility to this happening. The cities destroyed, the temple where he worshipped his God burned to the ground, his king killed, many of his probably friends and family, people who fought in the military also died during that battle, and then he was separated from his family and brought to Babylon. And so we're dealing with a story of how does someone in a sense with an incredible weakness live and somehow survive in an environment like Babylon. And here's the thing we know about Daniel. This is stunning. He was brought there as a 14 or 15-year-old kid. And yet Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, who had exerted all of his power to basically ruin Daniel's life, within a few years later died. Then his son Belshazzar dies. Then Darius, the Mede who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, who conquered Babylon, he died. And then Cyrus, the king of Persia, who basically had become a friend of Daniel. Daniel somehow survived four kings and two empires though he came into Babylon completely powerless. He had no power. It's a story of someone, in a sense, who comes into a place completely powerless, and yet God gave him something else, which is the key to what you and I need to actually learn how to live in the Babylon that we are a part of. Not power, but influence. He came to Babylon completely powerless, and yet God gave him tremendous influence. You might think, well, the reason he had influence was because, you know, like he got promoted and he kept getting more power and that's how he actually changed things. But we, we know actually from the dream that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had, the passage that Neil read for us this morning, it's a clue to how did this actually work in Daniel's life? Now, two weeks from now, you don't want to miss that because we don't want to miss next week either, but two weeks from now, we're actually going to talk about how did he survive this? Like, what did, what did the actual day-to-day aspects of Daniel's life look like? What is it that I can do to actually do that? We're going to get into that in a few weeks. But today, we get into this dream sequence, and, and it's again a situation, if you don't know the book at all, Nebuchadnezzar, this guy keeps having dreams, you might be thinking, what is his deal? Like, Is he just eating too many burritos after midnight? What's the dreams thing? Here's my take on it. This guy keeps, he's the most powerful man in the world at that time, and yet God just keeps terrifying him at night with dreams. Like, it's this sign of God, like, breaking in, saying, you think you're in control. I can bring you to your knees, sweating up in the middle of the night, freaking out at what you just saw in your night. I, I'm more powerful than you. It's this sign of, like, God breaking in on this guy. So he's another dream. He's terrified about it. He, 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 he doesn't ask Daniel right away to come interpret the dream, which is interesting because he already knows Daniel can do it. So you sort of wonder why he didn't. I, I think it's because he knew what it meant. He just didn't want to know right away. Like, maybe this is for somebody else. Because he had this vision of a, uh, a dream of a tree. Now, in the ancient world, kings were referred to as trees. Like, it's this idea of, like, something that was alive and strong and growing. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this tree that's, like, growing huge and spreading out all over the places, which is what was happening in Babylon. Their empire was spreading. And Nebuchadnezzar was at the, at the apex of this empire. And, and it says that a heavenly messenger, a voice from heaven, saying, Cut down, come down, and cut that tree down. Then it says, bind up the stump with bronze and iron. The idea of binding the stump was that it wouldn't split and then just grow again right away. So the roots remain, but the stump is sort of fixed. And then it says he's gonna be drenched with the dew of heaven and crawl around with the animal. So basically this was a Daniel comes and says, Well, here's what the dream means finally when Nebuchadnezzar says, Okay, tell me what it means. And he tells him what it means. Basically he's he's gonna lose his kingdom and he's gonna become he's gonna lose his mind says his mind will be changed, and he'll crawl around the animals. But basically, he'd go insane and think he was an animal for seven years. So that's the dream. Now, Daniel comes to interpret this thing. And in the interpretation, the whole interaction, we get a clue and a window and an insight into what was operating in Daniel's heart. How did he actually become someone who survived these 70 years and these four different leaders? If it's me, okay, and the guy who, we have to think, like Daniel had a pretty good relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, but this man had ruined his life. He'd ruined his life. N- none of us have ever had someone in that sense, like, who had done the kinds of things that Nebuchadnezzar done, but every one of us has had people maybe in our lives that we feel like we have been victims of their power play, whether by design or just by collateral damage. And you get this dream, right, of this someone who is your... Mortal enemy separated you from your parents, killed your king and, and his kids in front of him, destroyed your city, brought you to this foreign place and made you work for him. He's a crazy man. A little while ago, he had, tra- he had thrown your three friends into a fiery furnace because they wouldn't worship his image, right? Like Dave talked about that last week. This guy had done so many things to Daniel. Now Daniel gets this dream and the dream says, he's done. He's going to become a crazy man. He's going to actually go crazy and crawl around like, like. if it's me, I'm like, like so excited. I can't wait to tell this guy the dream, Right? Boom! You're done! Drop the mic. Daniel responds to the dream so differently, right? Like, is this is his enemy. And God gives him a dream and says, here's what you're going to tell him. He's done. All of his days of power playing, whatever, I am cutting him down to the point, I'm not even just going to kill him. I'm going to make a fool of him. This great, powerful, mighty man is going to lose his mind and live outdoors, and his nails are going to grow long, and his hair is going to grow long, and he's going to basically act like a wild animal. This was God humbling this proud, megalomaniac dictator of a totalitarian empire to nothing. It's the moment in the movie, everyone of us like, yes! And look at Daniel's reaction. Verse nine, verse 19. He says nothing, actually. He says his thoughts terrified Daniel was actually terrified at this interpretation. And we know why. It continues on in verse 19. He says, my Lord, I wish this applied to your enemies and not to you. You may say, oh, yeah, he's just kissing up. Like, that's just what he's saying. Inside, he's so happy. But look, look what he says next at the end of the dream. He says this. This was not part of the dream. This is Daniel adding his own editorial comment at the end. Your majesty, please Accept my advice. Look what he says to him: Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Like, use your power to help the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. There's no, thus saith the Lord, you're done, you're judged, all of your evil ways, all the stuff that you did to me and my friends and all the things that you have ruined my life and now God is ruining yours and you're done. All of that may have been even coming up in him. And he was only given the dream to interpret. He could have just told him the dream and walked out. But it says the thoughts terrified him and inside he says, King, can you please listen? Repent like change your ways, use your power to actually help the oppressed, it may be that your prosperity will continue. He was actually trying to get him to listen. And in this interaction, we know this. What was the secret to Daniel's influence in that place of total power? Love. Love. He actually loved the man he was serving. We know this, actually, Daniel did this with every one of the kings that he worked for, to the point that the two kings of Persia really loved him in return. They were his friends. They did everything they could to protect him. In this moment, we actually see Daniel was not just concerned with himself. He wasn't just serving the king. He actually loved him. He actually cared about him because when the dream comes that your enemy is going to be destroyed, inside he's not like happy and delighted and just going to drop the bomb and walk out. Inside, something is actually upset. He said he was terrified by the dream and he tries to convince the king to change his ways so that the judgment won't happen to him. And when I was reading this story about Daniel, it's very interesting. Another story came to mind. Some of you may be familiar with another Sunday school story we talk about about Jonah and, you know, being thrown into the water and a great fish swallowing him we know jonah was also a prophet like daniel was and jonah was also called to go to his enemies nineveh with a message and saying god's going to destroy you You need to turn around well jonah ran away why he wasn't afraid he just hated his enemies and he didn't want god to forgive them so eventually god says no you got to go anyway and he goes and he says hey three days you don't change your ways you're going to die basically like this judgment and what Jonah does is drops the message, goes up to a hill, and waits there for the fire to come down and destroy them. He, like, sets up a chair and he's, like, looking. He's got his Bud Light and he's, like, waiting for, you know, the show. Because he's mad at them, because he hates them, because they were his enemies. And then when God doesn't destroy them because they repent, Jonah's mad at God. He's like, See, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to go there because I knew you are merciful. And if I go tell them to repent, they're going to do it and you're going to spare them. And I don't want that to happen. How different. From Daniel. Right? Daniel didn't even need to say anything. He could have just told him the dream and politely walked out of the room. But he actually didn't want his enemy to be destroyed. There's a kind of love that is so unusual, and you think, actually, this guy had no power, but this is what he had, and this is the thing that allowed him to survive in a place, in an experience of powerlessness. He actually loved those who were in Wielding power over him, and and it wasn't this kind of like just sort of it wasn't like blind servitude. He did serve the king, but it was also love that spoke courageously, right? Like he actually opened his mouth. He risked his life twice. The first time was telling him what the dream was. This was the guy that just throws people into the fire if he doesn't like what they do, right? He could have lost his life by saying, "Here's the the dream means." Could have made up some lie about it. But he said, "No, this is actually the dream means. You're going to be cut down. And you're going to become a crazy man." And then he risked his life again. Why? Because he loved him. To actually try to spare his enemy from the judgment that God was going to bring on him. Because he could have risked his life by saying to the king, repent, you're wicked. Use your wickedness to actually help the oppressed. He calls him wicked and and sinful. But why? Not in anger, but saying, hey, change your ways, and then God may change his mind. It was a kind of love for a leader. It wasn't just about serving him, but actually speaking the truth in love. And I think, you know, for us, like this is an encouraging, but very challenging word for you and I, who find ourselves in relationships where there are power dynamics at play, where we are maybe Either by the intention of those who have power over us or just the collateral damage of the way we find ourselves in relationships and we are suffering because of the actions and the power plays of others that everything in us all of those anger fantasies all of that desire to say if i could just have the upper hand if i could just have a moment to kind of drop that bomb if i could just have that ability to get out from underneath them if i could just get the upper hand in this relationship and this the power play is going back and forth suddenly we are presented with an entirely different way of handling the power dynamics love love that chooses to serve those who are power playing not just with actions, but actually with courageous words. Sometimes we think the words that we would want to use in those relationships is to tell the other person, you know, you need to do this, or you're a judge, and Daniel didn't actually do that. He was telling him the truth, but it was the truth in love, and actually saying, hey, use your power for good. Change your ways. Think differently about what you have and who you are. It was Daniel pleading with him in love, to change his mind. And as hard as this is for us to think about, you know, loving our enemies and not just doing good to them, but wanting good for them, friends, this is actually way better than what happens to us when we grasp for power. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense, was literally turned into a beast. And this came true. If you read the chapter, he went on for seven years and went crazy. Power grasping, power brokering turns us into beasts. We become what we desire. You can actually see this, the story in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. There's all this language about the beast and Babylon and all of this stuff. It is the, it is the personification of what happens in empire. when we grasp for power when we look how you know when you're in those power plays and some of you have even experienced this like this if you're married or you're in families and you've you've actually finally said that thing that you wanted to say and got it off your chest you feel good for a moment how do you feel the next day you feel like crap right because you just you just got sucked in to playing the game the way they were playing it power plays in the sense when we grasp for them they just use us up we become people we don't want to be we become beasts when we grasp for power And Daniel offers us this totally different vision of what does it look like? How do you survive? How do you thrive in an environment of powerlessness? It's not by trying to get the upper hand. It's by actually choosing to love those around you. Not loving power, but using power to love. Whatever influence, whatever power Daniel had, not loving it, but actually using it to love. This is the game changer for us in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Whatever it is that we have, some of you come into a place like this, some of you find yourself in your place in life, in your role with title, with importance, with wealth, with position. Odds of you say, I don't have any of that. And the point is, influence doesn't need title or wealth or prominence to actually wield power. Influence uses love. And so whatever role you happen to have in life, nobody can take away the opportunity that you have to serve and love those around you and those with power over you It's what changed everything for Daniel. It's interesting, right, when Daniel comes in to interpret the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, who's narrating this part of the story, says, oh, the spirit of the gods is in Daniel. You could also translate that where it says the spirit of God is in him. We say, well, how, how do we know? What does it mean that the spirit of God is in this? Well, what did God do when he came into a world? How did Jesus choose to come into the world that we live in? In a few weeks, we're going to start Advent season, which is anticipating Christmas. How did God wield power when he came into a world that was now ruled by the empire of Rome? Jesus didn't come as some distant man riding into, you know, to save them as a 30-year-old, and people don't know, from parts unknown, with a hooded figure with a sword, killing everyone, right? Jesus came as a weak little baby, born to a poor family in a backwater town with no importance, no title, no anything, and the power of the cross has transformed the world we live in. And I said this to you before, but why does Sir Edmund Hillary, when he summits Everest, bury a cross at the top of humanity's greatest achievement? Because it has now become the symbol for what true power is. Daniel, in a sense, is like a little window that we look through to see what God would actually do with power if he had it, that you and I serve a God who does not wield power the way the world does, but actually comes in, and through humility and love, changes the world. And Jesus did it the same way. Yes, he loved people, and yes, he was compassionate, but he also spoke courageous words, words that have been written down, words that are precious to us now, words that we write songs about, that the words and the works of Jesus, of love, have changed the world that we live in. (laughs) And now, as Andy Stanley says, you know where it used to be that in Caesar's archway where he sat and watched Christians being chewed alive by animals. Now, hundreds of years later, there's a cross there and people name their kids Peter and Paul and they name their dogs Nero and Caesar. How did that happen? How did that happen? Not through the use of power, but through love. And You and I now sit here as recipients of that, that has changed the world. And so, here's what I want to ask you: Who is the person with power in your life that you need to courageously love? Maybe it's a leader around you. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's someone in your extended family. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe some of you feel like you're a parent, but your kids have all the power. Like, What does it look like to serve and also speak in love? What does it look like to say, I'm going to stop trying to power up in this relationship. I'm going to stop trying to get the upper hand. I'm going to stop the anger fantasies. And I'm actually going to start to think about how could I serve and love this other person? Friends, what changes in our psyche when we stop thinking about what we would say to that individual and start thinking about, how do they take their coffee? I wonder what's going on in their lives. I wonder how their relationship with their child is going. I wonder how they're feeling about their mom going through cancer. Like, what would it change in our psyche if we stopped trying to get the upper hand in relationships and started thinking about, God, how have you called me to serve and to love? And sometimes, for some of us, we do a lot of speaking. We need to start loving actively. And others of us are really good at the serving, but we're very scared to open our mouths and courage and say, hey, can I just be honest with you? And I said, well, what, what does that look like to actually serve with action or to use words? I remember um, when in the last job that I had that we had a, a leadership change in our company, and the new CEO came in, and all of a sudden everything changed rapidly at our company. He was one of those people that made quick decisions about you, whether you liked it or not, so a lot of people got fired right away. I happened to go on a business trip with him, uh, we connected, he seemed to like me, so all of a sudden my life got a lot better. I started making a lot more money, I got a lot more opportunities at work, and he would kind of come to me for advice about the company and just say, what do you think about this, what do you think about that? And I remember sitting there, and I was listening, I was at a conference or whatever, and I was listening to a guy speak about his own journey with this, and I felt the Lord saying to me, "VJ, what have you done with the influence I've given you? Like, I've given you influence, you know that. That just happened, you know it's from me. What have you done with it except enjoy how it's bettered your own life? So I was like, okay, <laughs> what do you want me to do? So I felt like in that moment, God's saying to me, listen, your company makes a lot of money and you pay a lot, you, get, you guys all get paid a lot of money. How about you start trying to get the company to give away some money to people who don't have any? So I was like, okay, I'll do that. So like two weeks later, I went at this company barbecue and our CEO comes over to me and he's asking me about some changes they've made recently and said, how do you think the culture of the company, how are people handling the changes? And I said, oh, I think good. And then at that moment, I can hear him, like, this is my moment, this is my moment, right? I said, but there is one thing. And he was kind of a close talker, so he's like, he like, leans right in, he's like, what is it? And I, in that moment, I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, how do I even say this? I wasn't planning on, and I said, I just think that, you know, we'd actually be even better as a company if we started to think about how we could give some money away to people who don't have any. So he kind of sits back, and he's like, okay, book a meeting. So I'm like, oh my gosh, so now I call him, and this vice president was in charge of some of this corporate activity that we did, and we we have this meeting booked, and then it never happened because I ended up resigning two weeks later, and I became a pastor here. (laughs) And I don't know what would have happened at that meeting. Like, they might have said, yeah, forget it. But I knew there was something in me at that moment that needed to change in the way that I saw what was going on in my life. Jesus saying to me, you need to choose what you, to use what you have to love other people. And I also knew that this was about God wanting to do something in the heart of my CEO. It wasn't actually about, I'd love to tell you, it was this great altruistic movement. I was crying tears for the poor. At that moment, I wasn't. It was something in me that I knew I needed to step out and say something courageous. And I knew God wanted to say something to him. And I said, if I actually love him, I will tell him. Now, I didn't know for me that one thing would lead to another in a short while I'd actually be doing something else, that God just didn't want me to just open my mouth once and speak to my CEO. He wanted me to change my whole life, and what I was doing with my career, but one thing led to another. And all this to say, I have no idea how it will go for you. And I don't know who that person is, and I don't know what those words are that you need to speak, but I do know this, that as we say, okay, God, what, who is the person I am meant to love? And what does it look like to serve them and to open my mouth And speak with courage. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you that we sit here 2,000 years later after you lived and died and rose again. We thank you that you have changed the world as we know it. We thank you that you showed us a different way. It was a way that Daniel was pointing to years before he even knew how love was going to transform the world how love was going to show power, what true power really is. And yet we recognize, Lord, we don't know how to live like this. We get sucked into the power plays and the power dynamics in our marriages, in our families, and in our offices, in our neighborhoods, and even in our churches. And so we long for you to show us a different way. So I pray for each person here that you would just help us know who and then what. Like, just lead us. You are not just our Lord. You are our leader. We follow you. And show, help us to know how to transform the little world of powerlessness that we often feel through love that comes from you. We thank you. Amen. (laughs)